podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the80sruled.com for more 1980s awesomeness. Did stand-up comedy peak in the 1980s? The answer is no laughing matter. Well, actually, it is a laughing matter. I mean, it's, it's comedy, so... Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from Will and Ray. I'm going to stick with this now. I'm Will and that's Ray. <laughs> and together we're Will and Ray. Yes, where there's a Will, ah. there's a Ray. On today's show, we'll be talking about the rise of stand-up comedy in the 1980s, and we'll be joined by an expert on the matter, Mr. Dan Pasternak, who hosts and also executive produced an audio documentary, Obsessive Comedy Disorder Boomers, the story of the 80s comedy boom and bust, which is available on SiriusXM On Demand right now. Uh, and I got to say, because I, I, we're going to talk to Dan later, and I don't know that we'll get have a chance to get into this because it has nothing to do with his audio documentary, but Dan himself has lived an amazing life starting at a, as a very young person, person in the 1980s. Yeah. He just has amazing stories about the different comedy greats that he befriended, the different comedy adventures he went on, the shows he worked on again, starting when he was pretty young. So if you get a chance, you should go to obsessivecomedydisorder.net, which is Dan's website and check it out to learn more about him and, the pictures alone <laughs> of Dan with with the various comedy icons on his website again as starting as a as a young person will just blow your mind. So, okay. But but, but listen to the show first. Speaking of that though, before we get started, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen to us, whatever podcast platform it is, so you can keep coming back to the podcast. And that's right. all. No, that's not all. You got to go to T Public and get some merch. I was trying to spare them your rage. I was still thinking about no, the no threats rage. you almost made last. No week. rage today. Just go buy some merch. It's cool. I know someone was hawking some other wares on our rumpus room, and you were like, "No, eighties <laughs> idiots merch only." That's right. I only wear official idiots merchandise. Right. He's wearing it now, top and bottom. Yeah, I actually am. All right. What else do we do? News, I guess. Yeah. Right? And then you say something about we're going to do some news now. Okay. Hey, we're going to do some news now. This is a very small update to, for us, what is a big story, because it's going to either make or break one of our favorite franchises. If it make continues to make it, I would say that you come out victorious. If it continues to break it, then I'm victorious, because, of course, I'm talking about the next sequel to Indiana Jones, which I swear is on a downward slope following Last Crusade, which was the maybe the peak of the, <laughs> of the franchise. I, I don't want to relitigate it. You, you, you think Crystal Skull was good? I don't. Nah. Regardless... We can both agree it was a movie. <laughs> so I don't know how they're going to get out of the hole they've dug themselves. Like, are they going to just write Mud off as if he's dead or? <laughs> well, continuity means nothing to the Indiana Jones franchise. Yeah. Like, Marion just disappeared. Yep. And then she came back. Yeah. Oh, and then what's her name disappeared too? Uh, Willie Scott. Yeah. And they never said what happened to uh, Short Round. Yeah, Short Round. Right. You're right. So it is a sort of a tradition. Yeah. But I was just thinking it'd be great, actually, if they open this film, much like the first film, right? Because we're also in this era where we have so many throwbacks to stuff we loved as kids. So they go to a sim similar, you know, a temple. What were they in Peru? All the booby traps, etc. Finally, they get the golden idol. It's him and Mutt. The boulder starts coming. Indiana Jones outruns Mutt. 
mud is crushed by the boulder. <laughs> I would much rather it open and short rounds there. And it's exactly like in the Goonies mm-hmm. where the things are dropping and he's going, yeah. it's a booby trap. Yeah. And they keep saying booby. And he keeps saying, that's what I said, booby trap. <laughs> I, I want that scene, but I want it with grown up short round uh-huh. oh, and yeah. Indy with the same trap where they're dropping from the ceiling. Poof. Okay. So we have to throw mutt in there though. So maybe short round uses the pincers of peril to save himself, but uh hmm. mutt plunges to death on one of those stalagmites or whatever those hmm. bottom of that. I don't, I don't know what the hell you do with mutt. No. I really don't. Mm. I don't. I, I, I'll be curious, but you're right. They may just never reference it at all. I don't think they will. Well, it's going to be a long time before we find out because they haven't even started filming yet. However, we're getting a little bit closer because we do have some casting notices. Phoebe Wallerbridge has landed the female lead in the upcoming film. We have seen her in something. <laughs> well, I'll just say. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> She's been in things, and now she'll be in this next thing. Now, Phoebe Wallerbridge is actually in a very popular show right now called Fleabag. She's the star of that. I've never watched it. She also played, I'm not going to remember the name or the designation, but she played the robot on Solo, Lando Carissian's uh, robotic uh, partner. I'm pretty sure he banged that robot, by the way, right? I mean, do you mean the annoying robot that didn't add anything to the story? Well, yeah. She's, and then she's uploaded into the Money and Falcon because she's dying. Mm-hmm. We get a sense that her AI now lives on. He banged that robot, right? Are we? I mean, are we on the same page? Here? Oh yeah, I wish he, he definitely had sex yeah, with yeah, that okay. robot. Yeah. So she played that character too. Not only did she do, do the voice, but she was on set. You know, actually, like in half of a robot costume and partly like a you know motion capture suit, doing all that sort of stuff. So she's going to be in it playing the female lead. And Mads Mikkelsen, who we've seen play the bad guy in a number of different films, including uh, playing Hannibal on television for at least a couple of seasons. I don't know how long that show lasted. I watched the first season until it just got unnecessarily gory and gratuitous. <laughs> and I was like, why? why? I don't need to see this. It was interesting enough. But I saw one thing say, Indiana Jones 5 has finally got its bad guy because it's Mads Mikkelsen's been cast. Nobody knows if he's playing the bad guy. They're just assuming that. He might be mutt grown up or something for all we know. I mean, <laughs> grown up, right? <laughs> uh, you know what, though? I don't think he's the bad guy because he's not a Nazi. Yeah. He's not a Russian, and I don't think he could play one. Well, I don't. <laughs> Unless he's fighting the mob. Well, I mean, do, do we know what he is? <laughs> he's got an accent. He's Swedish or Scandinavian. He's Scandinavian. So he's from one of those countries in Scandinavia. If the Scandinavians are the bad guys in this movie, we have bigger <laughs> issues than we thought. They were probably fighting, fighting about the environment, I would think. That'd be my guess. Oh, man. Indiana Jones is going to save the last plastic bag to bring it back to America. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to stop him. Well, we also learned that a gentleman named Thomas, I, I apologize, Thomas, Thomas Kretschmann, I'm going to say Kretschmann, also joined the cast of Indiana Jones 5 in an undisclosed role. And this comes to mm. us from The Wrap. Now, that sounds like a bad guy's name right okay, there. Okay, well, there you go. So now we know him. He actually did play a bad guy. He played Baron Wolfgang von Strucker in The Avengers Age of Ultron. He's one of the two characters that are experimenting on the twins that become the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. See? Yeah. That, that guy's going to be the bad guy. Hmm. You've got two. <laughs> this sounds terrible. you got two foreigners, <laughs> either of which could be the bad guy and could probably be a Nazi. I mean, right? Well, I don't know. It, yeah, it sounds like that could that could work out to their advantage. As far as we know, well, we know Jane, also John Williams is set to uh, score it. We know that Jonathan Kasdan, who coincidentally wrote Solo, a Star Wars story, was recently brought on to edit the script after David Kep left 
with uh, when uh, Steven Spielberg left. We believe James Mangold is still set to replace Steven Spielberg as the director, but they haven't started filming yet. They believe they'll be able to start filming really soon. And the release date, though, and you're going to love this, <laughs> it was originally going to be released in July of 2019. Yeah. We were so young then. So hopeful, mm-hmm. full of hope. Yeah. Then it got pushed till July 10th, 2020. Mm-hmm. Then again, it's been pushed to July 9th, 2021. But being that they haven't even shot a single <laughs> scene yet, they've now decided it'll be released July 29th, 2022. This is ridiculous. Will Harrison Ford live to be at uh, opening night? If a plane crash that he causes can't kill him. <laughs> right. In other 80s news, we have learned via Deadline.com that Jeff Goldblum is entering a new world. Not Jurassic Park. (laughs) He is set to lend his voice to a Dungeons & Dragons podcast called Dark Dice. Goldblum will play elven sorcerer Balmer on the upcoming season of the audio series. He's voicing one of the five player characters in the improvised audio drama where the outcome of the story is determined by the faded rolling of the dice. Yeah, yeah, I buy that. Yeah, yeah. you got professional actors coming on there to read parts and we're supposed to believe it's controlled by the dice. Oh, so you don't think they're improvising necessarily? No, hell no, they're not improvising. So, but you've seen Matt Mercer's thing. There's a difference between, uh, what is that, Critical Role? Oh, yeah, Critical Role, of course. There's a difference between that, because yep. that's, that's a Dungeons & Dragons game. You can physically see them mm-hmm. doing things. And mm. so, yes, do I think some of it's scripted? Absolutely. But isn't a lot of Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> scripted? Yeah, when you read, yeah, for, especially yeah, for the, the DM, yeah. The Dungeon Master knows exactly what's going to happen, and, and right. an experienced player already knows a lot of the tropes and all that. So, yeah. But uh, this one stinks of... Mm. Pre-written. It'd be, it'd be curious. You know, I hadn't even considered that. You're right, but I guess I don't know how good an improviser he is. He's an excellent actor. He even teaches acting. But And I've never heard him say, I love Dungeons & Dragons and I'm going to play some <laughs> D&D. Yes, that's true. Yes, I've never heard that specific sentence. Right, but but I, I guess I don't necessarily know why he couldn't improvise it, you know? But you're right. Some people can't do it. I'm just saying. And you got to understand the world, I guess. Or I don't. It, hey, maybe it'll just be hilarious because he he's improvising and he's just terrible. Just saying, why roll dice if you don't even know what you're playing? I don't know. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. If it's, you can tell. You can tell when an actor's acting, yeah. when oh. they're reading scripts and that. So I don't know. Can you tell with Jeff Goldblum? Because he does a lot of that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, fumfering around where he's, you know, sort of, that, that's how you know he's acting. Uh, ah, <laughs> hmm. maybe he's tricked <laughs> the world by always behaving that way. So he right. seems like he's a great actor, but that's just how he is. Maybe I don't know. Dark Dice's quest takes place after a failed attempt to save the world and follows the team's hunt for revenge against the other player-controlled team. Huh? Oh, so it's a team versus team thing. Interesting. Once again, does does that sound anything like Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah, to I'm you? not sure. When they call this a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, I thought they meant like Dungeons and Dragons branded campaign. Yeah. But you're right. They're you losing it loosely to me like RPG. Yeah, they suck. They shouldn't <laughs> be allowed to do it. And Deadline shouldn't be allowed to write this article. Well, they don't even know what they're writing about because yeah, exactly. they don't even know what Dungeons and Dragons is. It's like the most popular game in the world right now, and these people don't even know what it is. Oh boy, this is interesting. Like, so considering this is an audio podcast, right? Like ours. This says, mm-hmm. to complicate mystical matters, Goldblum's team is stalked by a creature known as the Silent One, a deceptive being that steals the face and voice of any creature it chooses. So that means it's open to, to somebody impersonating uh, other people absolutely. or... I will tell you right now, 
I don't have to see one f-ing second of this thing. Goldblum is the silent one. So anybody who is mm. going to enjoy that, I, and I ruined it for you. Sorry, but when you get to the end, and that's what happens. I'm so glad we only have to wait until May 12th when this season, which is titled The Long March, actually launches. And I imagine you can, you know, find it anywhere podcasts are available. I'm certainly going to check it out just to see. Well, yeah, now I have to check it out to see yeah. if I was right. Dang it, they got us. Yeah, they hooked us. Curse, Fool, and Scholar Productions, <laughs> the husband and wife duo, Travis Vengroff, <laughs> who produces and edits, and Caitlin Stats, who writes... Damn you. Yeah. And the and the hook uh finds a way. Hmm. I mean, these guys must be fantastic at writing and producing shows. They get Jeff Goldblum to come on and do an audio podcast about a thing he probably doesn't know care about. <laughs> you know what? What if it's not him? <laughs> what if it's a voice actor? I've heard a lot of good Jeff Goldblums. That's true. Yeah. And they call him and then they call this guy when it's found out, hey, that was the silent one, man. We told you you could impersonate <laughs> anybody. <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. Why is Jeff Goldblum's name in quotes in the credits here? Okay, hey, in other 80s news, have you watched The Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Not one minute. Oh, for crying out loud. You used to watch superhero movies, I think. I don't like oh, no. Here we go. either one of those characters. Oh. Just like WandaVision. I, didn't want, I don't like any oh. of these characters that they gave TV shows to. You know, I hear you about that somewhat. You know, they weren't didn't have a huge role. I lo- well, I like the Vision's character because he's like Superman. Wanda, uh, Maximoff, I could... Give or take. And I didn't even care for the way they, you know, sort of how they wrote it for Elizabeth Olsen. But I really love both those characters now because of that show. So I went into it sort of with your attitude, came out thinking, oh, I love both these characters. The actors are great, fantastic. Same thing with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, I like the actors. I don't like the characters. Okay. Give me more Iron Man. Give me the good ones. That's. I don't want to see these side characters. This would be like if Robin had his own show mm. without Batman. Yes. It would just be him running around going, man, I wish Batman was here. <laughs> I'm going to get Batman. <laughs> no. Actually, Robin does have a couple of shows. He's got the cartoon, the Teen Titans. So Yeah. Yeah, sure. That yeah. that one's really good. And there's a live action Teen Titans too. Yeah. Nobody tell Ray what happens with Iron Man. He doesn't know. I- I'll never find out. Don't ever tell him. Because he's still expecting to see a follow-up film with Iron Man. Everybody quiet. Nobody tell. Oh, no, no, no. I know Iron Man's uh-huh. dead from Endgame. Oh. Oh, okay. All right. All right. You do know. I already know that. Okay. But I'm telling you, there's another Iron Man coming. Yes, that's true. Because I know in the comic books, there's mm-hmm. more than one Iron Man. Oh, yeah. Well, even War Machine. So, Rhodey is like an Iron Man now. No, I'm saying, though, there's, War I think, yeah, well, War Machine, yeah. War Machine's different, but there's, I think there's three different Iron Men in the comic books. Well, I think the next Iron person we're going to get, oh, and Ray, you're going to love this. It's a woman. I was going to say, it's probably a woman (laughs) since Thor's a woman now. Yeah. I think it's going to be a series. (laughs) I think it's going to be a series too. Ironheart. I don't get to watch. (laughs) Ironheart is what it's called. And I think when it's Riri Williams is the character. I think she's like a a genius scientist like um, Tony Stark. It's basically Iron Man except Iron Woman. I get it. It's nifty trick you pulled there. Cool. (laughs) But anyway, so Falcon and the Winter Soldier, in the very least, maybe you know this much. And I won't spoil it for anybody who, who hasn't seen it yet because it's still fairly new. But one of the characters is played by Wyatt Russell, who happens to be the son of Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. And he does look a little like if they had a kid, which I guess makes <laughs> Man, I sense. hope so. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why does he look like 
He looks like Goldie Hawn, but not Kurt Russell. That would be. But why mm. do you sound like Sylvester Stallone? Yeah. You know, you don't want that kind of thing going on. <laughs> why does he look or, like Goldie Hawn and Mel Gibson? Why, why does he have an Austrian accent? <laughs> trying to think of other people she's been in trouble with. Why, what am I making Goldie Hawn to be out with? It could be Kurt Russell and a different woman. Yeah, the joke works both ways. Ray's got me she, down this. Actually, it actually doesn't no, it work doesn't. both ways. Well, no. Certainly historically, it's. <laughs> Wow. Certainly historically, it's sexist and misogynistic. And that's what I just did. I fell for it. So these two folks had a kid and he looks just like them. And, you know, I watched this film. I watched the show with my wife. And whenever he was on screen, she's like, oh, my God, he sounds just like his father. It's distracting. You know, (laughs) certain angles, he even has certain some expressions that look like him. And I didn't buy into it until there's a very late episode where he's giving this speech sort of. And for a moment, I was like, I get it now. I get it. So uh, along those lines, Wyatt Russell was asked uh, when he was answering some questions in, in connection with promoting the show for Esquire, he was asked if he would consider taking up the mantle of an iconic character played by his father, that of Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. We've known there's going to be a re- reboot, at least it had been planned. Uh, Lee Wanell, who directed The Invisible Man and the Saw, he created the Saw films, or the original ones anyway. Back in 2019, we had some reports that he was going to do it. And even Lee Wan Nell at the time suggested that maybe Wyatt Russell could take it up. Wyatt's response was, quote, although that's very kind, that will not be happening. There will be no snake reboot from me. That's like career suicide 101. That's a smart thing for him to say. Yeah, they raised him right. Well, because he's probably seen Escape from L.A. Yep. And even his dad had a hard time being snake in that movie. Oh, in the sequel, yeah. Uh, I like it. It's just, it doesn't have the same flavor as the first one. Yeah. So his dad probably said, look, they're get, if they write a third one, escape from Chicago, mm. don't get involved with this thing. <laughs> but I agree. Yeah, we don't want to see him try to fill his dad's shoes, crying out loud. And uh, I don't think Kurt's interested in doing a third one. Yeah. He's too busy playing Santa Claus. Wow. In, in fairness to him, he's already done it. So yeah. why go back? Yeah. So I'm trying to think what you said. I say, what did you say? Uh, you say, let's talk about news or something like that. What was that? I don't remember. What? <laughs> when I said, how do we do this or something? You said, well, now you say something. Let's talk about the news. And I said, let's talk about the news. Oh, how did yeah. we start? I don't remember. All right. Well, that was the news. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't remember. See? Nailed it. <laughs> we had a technical problem that we had to pause for <laughs> during 80s news. And I just forgot how we started everything. All right, it doesn't really matter. Okay, hey, like we said at the beginning of the show, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the rise of stand-up comedy in the 1980s with our guest, Dan Pasternak, who's an expert on this because he did an audio documentary on it that is available to listen to on Sirius XM. And it's excellent. More information about stand-up comedy than you, you knew you could know. And it's from the folks that lived it, the stand-up comedians that we grew up watching on TV and HBO stand-up specials and all those sorts of things. All right. mm-hmm. Before that, though, I thought we would talk about, you know, I don't know, our recollections, experiences with stand-up comedy because it seems like in the 1980s, you couldn't escape it. Yeah, especially when we hit about our teen years. Yeah. That's really when I think it exploded for us. Okay. Because uh, I don't know if, Bill Cosby was the first one you saw in the 80s. Yes, absolutely. But I think he was the first one I saw. And you say when our teen years, I think that was like 83. Bill Cosby himself. Yeah. It was one of those tapes that we got from my dad's shady friend. (laughs) And we would watch that thing over and over and over again. Oh, by the way, this is before Bill Cosby was a convicted criminal. What? 
when yeah. he was still funny. But yeah, I, I remember because it was on cable. So, yeah. oh, okay. So that would have been probably later. It could have been earlier. It all gets fuzzy at this point, but I definitely think Bill Cosby was the first one I saw. Yep. And he was really funny. Mm-hmm. And then that just transitioned right into Eddie Murphy. Right. There's no gap for me in my brain. It's just mm. Cosby, Murphy. So, and, and Eddie Murphy, you're talking about Delirious or Raw or both of them? Uh, Delirious, yeah. That would be the first one, yeah. And did you see it uh, or had you heard the record first? That's another one that I think I saw on cable. Yeah. That's why I think the two are so connected for me because I know I saw Cosby on cable and I know I saw Murphy on cable. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, man, this guy takes it to a whole different place. Yeah. My one good friend had the record of the concert, Delirious, I think before we ever rented the videotape. And maybe because, well, I was going to say maybe we couldn't rent the videotape, but we rented our movies, horror movies, like all the time. So that couldn't have yeah. happened. But we had that, he had that record and we would play it all the time. And, you know, it was, it was one of those things that, I don't know, my parents wanted me to hear, hear, hear me listening to that. <laughs> so we had to do it like, you know, secretly, like in the basement where my, my DJ yeah. equipment was, you know, we had the turntable on and listen secret and just be laughing and, and then quoting it, you know, in the neighborhood. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. The cool thing about that was, is, is, um, if you had a Walkman and headphones, you yeah. could listen to any of this stuff anytime you wanted. Yeah. Like I could listen to anything I wanted anyways, but yeah. it didn't matter. <laughs> but, uh, I've got my Walkman on the bus just so I can listen to this without getting caught. Huh. I did that. I had that similar thing, but with two live crew. Right. Same kind of thing. Yeah. The Walkman. And the I team. had some, some horrible punk rock bands that I used to listen <laughs> to that, man, you know, normal people just don't listen to that kind of stuff. And then that's when I get the cassette, I believe, for Clay, Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, okay. So you had a Clay uh, cassette for him. Yeah. I didn't see him on TV yet. Yeah. But in school, this thing was going around, you know, because cassettes could be easily copied back then. Sure. So at that point, you've got this thing and you're like, oh, <laughs> nursery rhymes that are dirty. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> yes. It's funny, right? I mean, his comedy was, it's like, not unlike comedy we were doing in elementary school <laughs> yeah. or high school. It was exactly well, like, like the jokes that we were writing like, when we is, were kids. And this is an adult? He's on TV <laughs> yeah. doing this? And then once you actually see what he looks like and yeah. the whole shtick with the cigarette going around the head yeah. and the the jack, the black leather jackets, yeah. and he looks like a cool guy. He looks like somebody you would hang out, you know, behind the school and smoke with. I remember two embarrassing... Well, oh, you know, I just remembered another thing, too. Shoot. So now we're on three embarrassing things? <laughs> no, no. Only two of them were mildly embarrassing. One, yeah. was, one was very embarrassing. Another one wasn't. <laughs> so, you know, I just, again, stand-up comedy was just everywhere. You couldn't escape it on TV. You had, like, that comic strip live show. You had that show that Bud Freeman hosted was uh, uh, improv. Uh, shoot. See, if Dan was on the show already, he would tell... I'm almost embarrassed now. This is the same show Dan's going to talk to us later. Uh, Bud Freeman's TV <laughs> show. Uh, An evening at the improv. Uh, see, I remembered it. Um, there was also uh, HBO One Night Stand where we saw a lot of comedians for the first time. There were there were so many of yeah, them. Concerts. Yeah. Like you could just sit there and watch comedy all day once yeah. it hit cable. So it was everywhere. And uh, yeah. it was one New Year's Eve. There was a girl I liked in high school. It was 1988 and I invited her to come over to my house and she'd never been there. We didn't really, we hadn't gone on a date prior to that. She comes over to my house. We, we had this... Uh, our family, my parents, we had a family room. It was kind of big and they had a partition by blinds, like vertical blinds, as if that created some kind of sound barrier or privacy, <laughs> nothing. And in one room, it was this young lady and myself were sitting, hanging out in this New Year's Eve party and the party's going on around us in other rooms. And in the opposite, this, you know, these Venetian blinds, essentially another couch and they're watching Dice Clay, who's having, I think it's a live <laughs> pay-per-view. 
and it's just coming on. And I believe it was the Dice Man Cometh. Uh, that's a good one. He starts going into hickory dickory, all the stuff. <laughs> People are laughing in that room and I'm horrified. Like I just, I'm just getting to know this girl. I don't know where she's at. And I don't want to dare like laugh at some of these things and reveal my hand at this point. <laughs> yeah. I will say yeah. you, you probably were smart there because I don't know many women that yeah. when you go, isn't Andrew Dice Clay <laughs> hilarious? Yeah. The I don't know many of them go, he is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my wife and I were reminiscing about stand-ups from the 1980s, and I said Dice, and she's yeah, I, I really never understood him. But then, uh, who else we got? We got Kinnison. You yep. got to throw him in there. Mm-hmm. He's on uh, he's on Married with Children, and he's he's in the uh, the video for uh, Bon Jovi. Oh yeah, he's right. he all of a sudden was just everywhere. He was in Back to School. Right. He played the right. teacher, Vietnam vet. And once again, for our brains, this guy just screaming at the top of his lungs was hilarious. Yeah. It almost didn't even matter what he was screaming. Yes, I agree. He happened to be a real clever guy. I mean, his takes on different things are hilarious, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Who else we got? Uh, Carlin was still big in the 80s, too. He made like a, once all the dirty comics got going, even though he wasn't really dirty, he kind of got a lot of play there in the 80s, too. Yeah, he was popular in almost like every decade he worked since, I don't know, it was the 60s or something when he was performing in a suit and tie. I actually saw Carlin do stand-up in the 90s, I believe it was, in New York City. Best, it was like, you know, one of the best comedy shows I'd ever been to. And it was just, I don't know. It was like uh, whatever rock musician you would, you know. It's like going to, it's like me seeing Fear. Fear. And I got, I oh, got to see go. Fear in the 90s, so. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But, but speaking of the 1990s, though, another awkward situation that involved stand-up comedy. And one that I think is even more embarrassing than the uh, Dice Clay uh, New Year's Eve story. Uh, and I, I thought it was... 89, but it was actually, I looked it up. It had to be in the early 90s, 91 probably. So I'm going to throw it in there anyway, because it was this the girl that I wound up dating for a few years. We're dating at this point and we would, you know, occasionally watch TV over her house. This isn't what you do when you're a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. And her dad, and I talked about him not too, not too long ago, military guy like my dad, very serious fellow. I've never, I don't think I had seen him crack a smile. I swear he never, he didn't have a uniform on, but he may as well have because he always had that rigid sort of back chest out. You felt like you maybe had to salute him as he walked by. I mean, a serious dude. One time we're watching TV. Mm-hmm. He comes in, change the channel because Martin Lawrence is coming on uh, HBO to do stand up. And look, I love stand up. I've got a good sense of humor. But again, it's just like that little, you know, situation I had with Dice Clay. I'm definitely not going to laugh at certain jokes in front of her my girlfriend's father, who's never cracked a smile. Now he's sitting <laughs> right next to me. It's like him, me, my girlfriend. And I still remember some of the jokes to this day, but I, I took a clip out just so you can hear some of the stuff I had to, to hear while I was sitting right next to my girlfriend's uh, military dad here. here. Here's Martin Lawrence. Cause you know, if you get that man to cry in that relationship, that man's really in love with you. No. Or you got oh. some good <laughs> on him, all right? <laughs> Yo, you ever had some good <laughs> just start crying? <laughs> You know, because you're overwhelmed that it's so good. You in the m- you like, this is some good m- baby. I'm like, yeah. I can't laugh at that because I'm not supposed to know about any of those things because I'm dating his daughter. You know, we were all of, I don't know, 18 or 19 or something like 17, 18, 19 at the time. <sighs> anyway, I survived that, but yeah. I don't know. Anything else? I don't know. Maybe we should talk to somebody who knows what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. All right, hey, in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, Dan Pasternak. 
than two decades, our guest has been in the business of making television and digital entertainment as a producer, programmer, studio executive, and writer. But his love of comedy began during his youth in the 1980s, when he accomplished more by 1989 than most of us have set out to do. Today, our guest joins us as the host and executive producer of Obsessive Comedy Disorder, Boomers, the story of the 80s comedy boom and bust. It's an audio documentary that chronicles the events that led to the rise and fall of stand-up comedy during that era, with many major comedy stars offering their first-hand accounts. It's available right now on Sirius XM On Demand. Please welcome to the show, Dan Pasternak. Hi, how are you? Good, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, our show is dedicated to proving objectively, and we mean it seriously, that the 1980s was the best decade for all things pop culture. And we believe in many ways this can be proven, but rarely do we have an opportunity to speak to someone who's actually done the hard work, such as yourself, (laughs) to document that, in fact, it is true. And of course, we're talking about the comedy boom and ultimate bust, but the boom in particular that happened in the 1980s. So we appreciate you coming to fill us in. Well, the bust didn't really occur until the early 90s. So, yes. So the truth is that there was no bust in the 80s. The 80s was all boom, all (laughs) boom. So, you know, taking a step back, because I did listen to all six and a half hours of your your documentary so far, I was the guy. (laughs) So I want to start with the question that you put to many of your interviewees. Who were your comedy heroes when you were growing up? Wow. Well, that's a really good question. I will tell you, the first two that really imprinted on my brain were Bugs Bunny. Mm And Groucho Marx, both of them uh, equally significant in my early forming comedy brain. And I realize now only in hindsight that it was because both of them were anarchists. Right. Oh, really? (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, essentially Mel Blanc was doing a a Groucho Marx, somewhat of a Groucho Marx, the Bugs Bunny character, and someone had a lot of takes that were sort of Marx-like. Well, you know, it's interesting. Mel could have been, he he was actually a dear friend of mine when I was a kid. What? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I can give you some audio if you want to include Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, outgoing answering machine message that Mel did for (laughs) my answering machine in the Uh, 80s, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. but no, he was a he was a good friend of mine when I was a kid, wow. um, which was crazy because, again, he had been this seminal influence. But yeah. he could have been the greatest impressionist of all time. But he felt strongly about doing original voices. He said that he felt that doing impressions was like stealing from people. Mm. So the Bugs Bunny voice was a. Uh, in, in his telling of it, was a combination of the toughest accents he could think of, which was a combination of a Brooklyn and a Bronx accent, right. because he was told that the character was, quote, <laughs> a tough little stinker. Yeah, <laughs> right. I guess I meant more like uh, the, the comedic delivery, you know, where sort of the language was, he relied on Bugs Bunny, maybe even giving Bugs Bunny more credit than he, how he was written, that in, in much the way that Groucho Marx relied a lot on language, a lot of the gags were, you know, jokes that kids wouldn't get at the, watching the Marx Brothers. Bugs Bunny was clever in a way that Groucho Marx was, I guess is what I'm thinking. Not necessarily the no. sound of the voice. Well, he was anti-authoritarian. He was certainly disrespectful where there were characters that could have, should have sort of lorded over him so that he was, uh, 
you know, he was always the character that said whatever wisecrack was on his mind. Again, that really appealed to me. So it it definitely um, pointed a way <laughs> that ultimately led to uh, my parents being called to various <laughs> schools that I would attend through the years. <laughs> Uh, yes, I was kicked out of math. I was kicked out of the third grade. <laughs> was this, okay. Was this involving some Bugs Bunny-like uh, prank of some kind then? I, I, you or, know, let's just say that there were shenanigans aplenty. Shenanigans, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. geez, I feel like we can spend an episode now just asking you how you came to know these amazing characters that we loved in the 1980s. Uh, but I, hey, I can't move on without asking you, how do you become friends with Mel Blanc in the 1980s? So I grew up in Los Angeles. So much of the good fortune I enjoyed had a lot to do with geography. I grew up in West Los Angeles. My dad took me to have lunch with a friend of his. It was an old army buddy of his, a guy named Ken Caps. Ken Caps had an office in Beverly Hills, but had also been I think shortly after he and my dad were in the service in World War II, had played with Spike Jones and his city slickers. Okay. Spike Jones, a major influence on Weird Al Yankovic. So there's your 80s connection. Right. Anyhow, I had lunch with my dad and his friend Ken, and Ken shared an office with Mel Blanc. Wow. They were in the same suite of offices at the corner of Beverly Drive and Wilshire Boulevard. And uh, of course, I'm thrilled to meet Mel Blanc. I told Mel that I had a huge collection of old radio shows on cassette tapes that he had appeared on. Well, he didn't have any of them. And he said, gee, uh, if I gave you some money, would you make copies for me? And I was like, you don't have to give me money. I'd be thrilled to do that for you. And he said, oh, okay. And I would bring him these cassette tapes and then he'd say, do you want to go have lunch? And he would take me out to lunch. <laughs> And he taught me about doing voices. He even got me hired to be a voice on a Heathcliff cartoon with him um, when I was 14, 14, wow. 15, something like that. And when I started making my first, you know, productions, video productions, I would just tell him about what I was working on. And then he'd say, well, is there anything in it for me? <laughs> I'd go, well, there is now. <laughs> So he was yeah. just incredibly kind to me. And of course, now in retrospect, it's unbelievable to think that yeah. I was friends with the voice of all of those cartoon characters. Yeah. yeah and I know you, you, you talked about working on these productions. Is this around the same time? You're still a pretty young man now making videos? Of sure. Those? I mean, oh. so, I mean, I kind of knew what I wanted to do from a really young age. I mean, I made my first record when I was 11 and then I started shooting these productions. I would write scripts and I started making these productions when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. By the time I was 16, uh, I got my first summer internship at Paramount Pictures. Wow. Well, Ray and I, we were, what were we doing? Playing uh, stickball or wiffle ball or something. Uh, Goodness at gracious. At 16? Yes. At 16, I was getting drunk and trying to figure out how to skateboard. Look at that. And oh, uh, trying to play the drums. That's what I was about. doing then. Now, one of the, you, you mentioned that you knew what you wanted to do at a young age. I find it fascinating that so, mo so many of the folks that you interview in your, in your documentary had a similar story. That at a very young age, they discovered some comedy record or had the good fortune of seeing someone, you know, some of the stories in uh, Cat Skills. And ultimately, they knew what they wanted to do. Well, I mean, let's talk about uh, the biggest 80s comedian of them all oh. is Eddie Murphy. Right. Yeah. Well, Eddie 
it, you know this obviously from listening to the the audio documentary, but Eddie was a was a wonderkind. He sure. knew absolutely what he wanted to do. I mean, he was working in comedy clubs when he was 14, 15, 16 years old. He was 19 when he got on Saturday Night Live. And and ultimately single-handedly saved uh, Saturday Night Live during that uh, weird interim period. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Without question. Without question. So your documentary tracks the boom of comedy in the 1980s. And anecdotally, we already suspected that the 80s was huge for comedy because our experience was suddenly going from kids growing up in the 1970s to having so many opportunities to see stand-up, including on television, you know, where if you didn't have access to a comedy show, you suddenly had, you know, a comedy, stand-up comedies on, uh, comedians rather, on TV. Um, my prom in 86 or 87, after the prom, the limo driver asked us where we wanted to go. We went to Dangerfields. Yes. You know what's really funny? I did not include that in the body of the audio documentary, but numerous comedians talked about how the best paying gig in the city were the prom shows at Dangerfields. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Specifically. <laughs> truly. Yeah. Truly. That they, that many of the, I mean, I, I, oh my God, when, when Paul Provenza hears this, he's going to yeah. flip out because he engaged in so many of these conversations with our guests talking about, did you do the prom shows at Dangerfields? Yeah. <laughs> because it was, even though they were terrible gigs, they were notoriously terrible gigs. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody said, oh, but that was like the best paying gig of the year. Yeah. <laughs> so before the 1980s boom, though, what did, what did the comedy landscape look like prior to that? Well, I mean, listen, there's always been comedy and comedians, but there were very few comedians and the places that they worked were also few and far between. Um, I mean, you can sort of go through the various eras. There was obviously vaudeville and burlesque. And when that went away, there was this nightclub era. So in major metropolitan areas, talking about New York, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, Miami, you know, a handful of big cities, there would be these big, beautiful nightclubs where comedians would generally work on a bill with you know, musicians, singers, dancers. You know, there were always, again, big name comedians that could headline these rooms, you know, famously, Martin and Lewis were a sensation at the Copacabana in New York City. So uh, comedians or comedy teams did have places to play. There was also, uh, you know, the Borscht Belt, uh, you know, the Catskills, um, you know, the Poconos, uh, as, you know, places like Las Vegas emerged, those showrooms right. uh, emerged as well. Uh, Miami, there were places to play, but there were no comedy clubs. And that's really important because there was really no place that cultivated young comedians. But so it was always these environments where comedians worked alongside other forms of entertainment. Right. But again, no room that was specifically devoted to comedy. That really didn't emerge until the 70s and when the boom broke, you went from a handful of these comedy clubs that generally opened in the 70s to by 1978, 79, dozens to during the height of the boom, hundreds. So where there had maybe been 100 comedians in the country, by the end of the boom, there were thousands, thousands of comedians. And, you know, one of the byproducts then became 
that comedy started to develop in places where it really never had before. So you had these grassroots scenes that emerged in places like Denver and Houston and Boston. Boston had a legendary scene. There were all these great secondary markets that became the home turf for comedians that were from that area. So all these regional voices emerged. There was also an explosion of sort of the first wave of real diversity, where there wasn't just one or two women working in comedy. There was now a a generation of them. There wasn't one or two well-known Black comedians. There was now a generation of them. And so while in hindsight, it wasn't nearly as diverse as the period we're in now, and there are certain perspectives and voices that didn't get to step forward as they should have during the 80s, I do believe it was the beginning of doors starting to open. And so that's really, I think, worth celebrating. Right. So I, I, I don't want I don't want to uh, steal any thunder from your documentary. So it's like a book, you know. We want any spoilers, but uh, <laughs> it's totally all right. The the entire documentary is is fantastic. You you speak with so many well known comedians, and uh, we learned so much. You're re- really able to from some di- some different perspectives experience what these folks went through. You know, uh, making their bones uh, in, in comedy. But ultimately, the thing I thought could be a film, if it hasn't already, is what happened in, in 79 at the Comedy Store that sure. ultimately, as you point out, is going to lead to the boom uh, of, the, of the 1980s. Can we talk about the uh, strike at the Comedy Store? Absolutely. I believe the strike is what led to the boom. Before the strike, and this is important to say, there were these what were called showcase rooms. So these comedy clubs, we focus on the establishment of three of them in New York. So at first there was the improv, then Catch a Rising Star, and then the comic strip. And then in L.A., there was the comedy store and then an L.A. improv. Bud Friedman left New York. Uh, He left his ex-wife and his partner, Chris Albrecht, who later became the head of programming at HBO, to run the New York improv. And then Bud came out to L.A. and opened the L.A. improv. So we focus on those five rooms, which are all incredibly important in establishing the the talent that became the first wave, the stars of the boom. Yep. And nobody got paid in those rooms. Everybody worked for free. The idea was that you were developing an act, an act that would get you on television and could launch you into a career. There were many examples of this happening. And so people who loved comedy and wanted to be comedians and saw that this was just the dues you had to pay, worked these stages for free. But as comedy began to heat up, one of the things that became apparent was that these young comedians who were broke, who were struggling to get by, were watching as these club owners were getting pretty rich. And the comedy store was a notable example because Mitzi Shore who was the owner of the store. She had opened it with her husband, Sammy Shore. He really was the one who opened the store, but when they got divorced, she had been running it uh, and running it very well. But she got the store and then opened a Westwood comedy store and opened one in the San Diego area and uh, wound up buying the building where they had only been you know, in this one little room of this larger building. So it was becoming kind of an empire. 
And all these comics saw how much money Mitzi was making and said, yeah, gee, you know, we think we should get paid something. And she said, no, this is a college. This is where you're coming to learn your craft. You're not ready to be paid. When you go off and get on The Tonight Show and get a sitcom and become a huge star, you'll be a millionaire and, you know, it'll have all been worth it. And that's why you're working the stage for free. And so the comics ultimately decided this wasn't fair and they went on strike and it went on for weeks and it got really heated and it led to some pretty dramatic happening. But at the end of the day, the strike was settled and the comedians were paid, I think, $25 a set in the original room and in the main room of the comedy store. Uh, which was this big 450-seat showroom, um, the comics collectively, whoever paid, played the room that night, would split the door 50-50 with Mitzi. And it changed everything. It changed everything in all of the other showcase clubs that hadn't been paying yep. comics because they didn't want to have to deal with a strike. And so the business model changed. And the reason I believe it led to a boom is because young comedians, for the first time, as they were developing, could actually make a living at comedy. Right. And just to give folks, you know, so I guess some color to this is that ultimately comedians that made it in the 80s that we're familiar with that are huge stars now today took part in the strike. And some of these folks were starting to be successful already, but still stood in solidarity with the younger folks that were coming up. We're talking about like Elaine Boozler, uh, Jay Leno, uh, Marsha Warfield, Tom Dreesen, that were part actively trying to negotiate to get uh, these folks paid. It's it's. Really, it's outstanding. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, one of the anecdotes that I thought was the one of the most powerful stories of the strike was David Letterman was starting to take off. And Dave was, you know, very much one of Mitzi's proprietary stars. Like he drove in his beat up old red pickup truck <laughs> from Indianapolis to the comedy store because he knew that uh, comedians who got on The Tonight Show were playing the comedy store. So he went there never having been a comedian before to become a comedian, became a favorite at the comedy store. And during the strike was when David guest hosted The Tonight Show for the first time. Hmm. And this was a big deal. And after he guest hosted The Tonight Show, I think it was a Monday night and Johnny Carson that night was hosting the Oscars. The executive producer of The Tonight Show, Freddie de Cordova, said to David, uh, okay, we'd love to have a meeting with you after the show. And David said, uh, I can't because I have to go to the comedy store and walk the picket line. Mm, wow. <laughs> and he sided with the comedians. And it really, it got, you know, there are still relationships that were shattered by the strike that have never been repaired to this day, 40 plus years later, because people were either on the side of the comedians who were striking or they were loyal to Mitzi. And like you alluded to, there's a number of twists and turns and surprises that happen that ultimately lead to Mitzi giving in. One of them, including a mysterious fire at the arrival down the street there, the, uh, what the improv, right? But yes. What's interesting is that building on Melrose that is still the, you know, the, the LA improv had been a folk room years before uh, that was a pretty legendary folk room called the Ash Grove. And a lot of counterculture comedians of the prior generation had played the Ash Grove. I'm talking about Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul and uh, the first feminist comedy duo, Harrison and Tyler. 
who are a fascinating story in and of themselves. Um, but because there was all this uh, very far left political activism going on with the musicians and the comedians and the shows that were being put on at the Ash Grove, I believe the Ash Grove was the target of arson. I think uh, something like three times or four times in as many years. Oh, wow. And so the Ash Grove closed down, but there was this whole history of people targeting the Ash Grove for arson. Well, during the course of the comedy store strike, the comics who were striking at the store spoke to Bud Friedman, uh, the owner of the improv, who said, listen, whatever you negotiate with Mitzi for the store, I'll honor that and I'll pay you too. So they started to go to the improv. And uh, apparently Mitzi loyalists said, well, what if there was no improv and threw a Molotov cocktail on the roof of the improv and burned half the building down. Crazy story, by the way, uh, if you're a fan of that era of comedy, do you know a comedian by the name of Robert Schimmel? Of course. I saw, I saw Bob Schimmel uh, do stand-up once, yeah, and here in Cleveland. Well, so Robert Schimmel was from Arizona. Okay. Terrific guy. Was also a really good pal of mine. Uh, but apparently had come to L.A. at one point and had showcased for Bud at the Improv. And Bud said, you're terrific. Whenever you're ready to come out here, you let me know and I'll put you on my stage. So Robert Schimmel said, that's it. I'm a made man. I'm a comedian packs up his car with everything he owns and drives from Arizona to the improv, pulls up and there's fire engines outside the improv. It is just burned to the ground. This is the luck of Robert Schimmel. If anybody knows his story, there's so many tragic twists to the story of Robert Schimmel, who's sadly no longer with us. But he walks up to Bud and says, I'm here. Bud, who is dealing with the fact that his club has just burned down. Who are you? He says, don't you remember me? And Bud's like, yeah, I'm a little busy right now. <laughs> so Shimmel was like, oh, this is like not what I hoped would happen when I pulled up at the improv. I think he was he was hoping, you know, the doors would fly open and he'd run on stage and he'd become a star. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and now I realize I referred to Robert Shimmel as Bob as if I knew him. I apologize for that. Uh, his, his friends <laughs> called him Bob. I called him Bob. So, so you talk to a number of comedians who, again, we... Growing up in the 1980s, they were our folks, you know, uh, Paul Reiser, Paul Provenza, as you, as you mentioned, um, Kevin Pollack, Louis Anderson, Jeff Foxworthy. So one of the things that came up a couple of times was the difference, and I hear this all the time, right? The difference in comedy in, in the 80s, and we talk about this on our show, you could say anything in the 80s, now you can't say anything. Oh, the PC mm-hmm. police. Yakov Shmirnov pointed out that PC was something that he said that Lenin, a phrase that politically correct was a phrase that Lenin had coined. Um, right. Judy Tenuta was was embarrassed to sing a song that she sang in the 80s for how I guess it would be perceived or interpreted today. To her credit, she does it anyway. She does. She does. I, I was thrilled when Judy showed up for the interview and brought her accordion. <laughs> That's awesome. So do you think, uh, I guess, where do you come down on this argument? Again, that I've heard many times that maybe people were able to be funnier in the 80s because there was less, you know, quote, whatever that politically correct oftentimes thinks is a euphemism for, you know, being allowed to be racist, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. do you think things were funnier because they maybe they were different limits in, in the 1980s versus today? Well, it's interesting. We could have this conversation in the context of the beginning of the 80s or the end of the 80s. Mm. 
the beginning of the 80s, really, there's not a lot of comedy that you could point to that anyone would think of as objectionable because most everybody was focused on working clean. Everyone's goal was to get on The Tonight Show. Uh-huh. Uh, largely, the comedy was apolitical as opposed to the comedy sort of coming out of the counterculture era of the 60s and even the early 70s. Uh, and so it was mostly observational comedy. Even Carlin was doing A Place for My Stuff hmm. in the 80s. He wasn't doing <laughs> The Seven Dirty Words. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So the beginning of the 80s, there's not a lot of really challenging or controversial comedy. Here's where things start to veer in various directions. What happens in the middle of the 80s, and this is really, I think, a big contributor to both the boom and the bust, Mm. is the proliferation of platforms on cable television. Okay. And so the focus is no longer putting together your set to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Now people can go on HBO and say anything. So someone like Sam Kinison, who couldn't have gotten on television, goes on a Rodney Dangerfield young comedian special and blows up. And by the way, deservedly, Sam was amazing and brilliant and breathtaking. I watched it happen because I was at the store during that era. So comedians like Sam and like Andrew Dice Clay, who wouldn't have emerged in the environment of the early 80s, became huge stars towards the end of the boom. But the end of the boom, comedy, because this was the direction it was going, became as controversial then as it is now. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of controversy about misogyny and homophobia surrounding those comedians at that time. Hmm. And where do I come out? I'm a big First Amendment guy, but I also recognize that we right now are three guys (laughs) having this conversation. (laughs) And just because you can say anything doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is particularly notable is that I knew a lot of gay and lesbian comedians in the 80s who were not comfortable coming out. And there was a lot of homophobic comedy at that time. And representation matters. We were in the middle of an AIDS crisis in the 80s. And I don't mean to bum everybody out, but that kind of sucked. And I, I do think that it might have given all of us a slightly different perspective if some of those comedians had felt comfortable about speaking their truth and talking about their perspective, but it wasn't really hospitable. So again, I'm not about trying to say, here's what you shouldn't say. I have my perspective, but I do think even though the 80s is a period that I hold really dear, and obviously I know you guys agree, I actually think that we're in a real renaissance of comedy now because of the breadth of voices that we have that we didn't have then. It's an evolving art form, and I love how it's evolving, and I love that, in fact, we now recognize it as an art form. So I think that the boom, we owe so much to that period, but I do think that one of the reasons that there was a bust was because it did get so loud, it did get so dark, and it did turn a lot of people off when it went in that direction. And I do think that we sort of had to 
regroup and reevaluate. And a whole new generation of comedians had to emerge from that experience. Right. You can only push something so far before you have to find something else to be funny with or talk about. They took it as far as they could in the 80s at a time when you could get away with it. It doesn't mean they were all homophobic or racist. A lot of them just piggybacked off what was popular at the time. So eventually it just blows up so much and then you had to have something different. Yeah, but I do think a certain amount of that became pandering. It's it's what I called gladiator comedy. It's mm-hmm. like what I saw happening was that you would get a, a crowd revved up and riled up, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like it was a, oh, I don't know, a, a rally from a certain <laughs> populist political leader. <laughs> and I do think that playing yeah. to people's basest, yeah. lowest instincts is easy. Yeah, and another part of that is, is, um, we were like 14 or something when all the filthy comics came out sure. and our brains weren't fully developed yet. So we were still figuring out who we were. And this was something we'd never heard before. So a part of that, but I do the, think the taboo right, part of it, see if you agree with me, the stuff that actually has stayed with us and has lasted is the stuff that could titillate that part of your brain, but had more substance. Like, I do believe that people sometimes draw the wrong conclusions from the work of the artists that ultimately meant the most to me. People cite people like Lenny Bruce or George Carlin or Richard Pryor without understanding how scholarly someone like Lenny or Carlin was. I mean, Carlin never talked about sex at all. I mean, he wasn't doing profane material to you know, appeal to your prurient interests. Right. He was the most incisive analyst of the language that we speak and the culture that we're living in. It was really brilliant commentary. Right. So I think when people mm-hmm. cite those people as, well, I should be able to do it because look <laughs> at, you know, you know, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was, I'll just say it, I think the single greatest comedian we've ever had. And it was all about revealing his humanity. Now, by the way, you can still go into the works of Richard and see things that if he were to be with us today, he probably would have done differently. He evolved. He evolved, as Carlin did, over time, many times. You know, there was that famous piece that he did, uh, I think it was in Live on the Sunset Strip, where he talks about his trip to Africa and he had this revelation about the N-word. And he said that he was never going to use it again, where it had been so much a part of the vernacular of his comedy. Right. So go back and study the works of these artists, and you can even see them disavowing things that they had done before as they developed as artists. So I think we as a culture and as the art form develops, we should all be able to do that as a collective, as humanity. How do you feel Eddie Murphy's done with his transformation into the the modern world of comedy? Well, you know, it's so interesting. And I talk about this in the boom as well. Two of the biggest comedians we've ever had, ever, both stopped doing stand-up during the boom. Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. You don't get bigger than those two guys. So... It's interesting because when Eddie stopped, which is, I think, 87, around when he did Raw. I think Raw is the end of the road for Eddie as a comic, right? And he wasn't even 30 years old at that point. (laughs) 
I mean, think about that, by the way. By that point, he'd already been on SNL. He'd done Delirious. He'd done Raw. He'd done 48 Hours and Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop. And he was, what, 26 years old? So as an artist and as a human being, you know, he wasn't fully mature. He was brilliant. And he had performance ability like no one had ever seen before. But then Eddie became a movie star. And he stopped doing stand-up. And I think the most fascinating thing, and this has been talked about now a lot in the last couple of years, I think really starting with when he did uh, Comedians in Cars getting coffee with Seinfeld, is that Eddie's really been thinking about getting up on stage again. I, for one, would love to see who Eddie, as a 60-year-old guy, is now as a comedian. And I'll tell you, it's not going to be the same brash kid in a leather suit (laughs) but i can only imagine that he too will have evolved yeah well you know in the last couple years he's apologized for some of his earlier material saying that he understands now the impact it had you would hope that anybody who has a platform and power would help move society towards how we want it to want to see it and not necessarily how it is at the time you know i'm a big believer in that you know tcm has been doing this um series all this past month taking i think 18 classic movies and it's a series called reframed where they're putting some historical context around quote-unquote problematic movies you know i'm not a big believer that you know we should start taking books out of libraries and burning them i think that we can put historical context around great works of art from the past so that we understand who we were and what artistically is still there to be appreciated, but that culturally might be of its time and deservedly so, you know, should stay in that (laughs) period. So it's not that we're, uh, you know, looking at things that might be racist or misogynist or homophobic and think that those values need to be perpetuated. But do I think that we should take Eddie Murphy's delirious and, you know, stop showing it because there's some homophobic material in it. No, Eddie is one of the great comedians of all time. And, you know, I think he should be allowed to say, yeah, that's who I was when I was in my early 20s. So I guess what I didn't expect to take us in this direction, but hey, (laughs) like uh, Eddie Murphy's comedy, it's raw. It's just not nearly as entertaining. Not because of Dan. Dan's great. He was fine. He was fine. Oh, he met the standard sorry. of fine, have I, Dan. Have I been tiresome and, <laughs> and not entertaining? Oh, boy. We, we no, can, no, we can no. start all over again. Here. <laughs> okay. Will, do the yeah, intro. Please, all over again. welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. <laughs> hey, so good to see you guys. What do you want to talk about? Well, what I did, what I want to take away, though, what you said is, you know, is, you know, but for its flaws, but for its sort of, uh, again, maybe difference in perspectives and maybe some of them that we shouldn't have, weren't even right to share at the time, you know, but um, that we've done some growing up that ultimately, even if we're in the Renaissance today, as far as how comedy goes, and I agree with you with all these diverse voices that we're able to hear from now, it all began in the very important decade of the 1980s. Absolutely. And by the way, I have nothing but affection for this period, uh, for that era. It was an incredibly formative time in my life. And like I say, I think that so much of modern day comedy, you you can see the roots clearly springing from the 1980s. 
look, we can only fit so much during this interview. If you get a chance, you should definitely check out Dan's audio documentary, Obsessive Comedy Disorder, Boomers, the story of the 80s comedy boom and bust, which, like we said, is available on SiriusXM On Demand right now. So much information, like we mentioned when we were talking to there. And again, you get to hear from a number of comedians that we loved during the 1980s. Uh, so many folks that came out and made it big in those during those those years, um, but I don't know that we learned anything about the 1980s. We didn't learn. Shit. Oh wait, proved. Damn it! I don't know that. But we you did. know what we did do? Because we well, we actually did learn a lot of things. We have proven ah, ah yes beyond a shadow of a doubt okay. that every vulgar comedian that comes out oh. owes everything they have to the comedians of the 1980s. Mm. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and we will talk to you next time on the Idiots. See ya.